second one we made it to the second one uh light to the edge universe and my name is tom preisler obviously um so today I, i wanted to talk to everyone about the most fascinating topic um that is vampires uh in modern folklore popular culture and in real life you know um i think for me vampires have always been this metaphor for other things you know uh whether a disease or uh, you know later uh, as a sexual component uh you know very much uh metaphors for for human life and human condition you know um but again you know as i always say um the idea of the modern vampire is relatively new um because it started uh during the romantic period uh, specifically around the 1800s the early 18 uh, 1800s 1816 was sort of the birth of the modern vampire as we know it uh the one that's featured in Bram Stoker's Dracula uh Lord Ruthven uh of John Polidori uh a friend of uh a physician and friend of Lord Byron's um before that the concept of vampires was as this uh reanimated corpse uh you know filth um half rotten zombie almost like um but lately um uh, and by lately i mean <laughs> starting from the 18th you know 1800s uh the vampire became something very different something alluring something considered sophisticated sexy uh lord of the night right um so let's 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 go through this right i'm going to take you through um its place in poetry um its place in literature uh and then we're going to end up on my personal favorite story a case rather of uh authentic vampirism in 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 modern world uh, such as the highgate cemetery vampire in london i wish i could broadcast this to you from highgate but um we'll do a follow up episode and uh that one's going to be broadcasted live from there. So um all right. So the start the origins, all right. Lord Byron I think is one of the main heroes that brought supernatural vampirism into the modern world. 
Um, through his connection to writing stories about monsters, uh, epic poems such as The Gower, which is uh, before John Polydor's The Vampire is the first mention of vampire in, in, in the modern literature, right? But let's go on. So uh, the poet, the physician, and the birth of the modern vampire from that famed night of ghost stories in Lake Geneva in 1816, as well as Frankenstein's monster, there arose that other great figure of 19th century Gothic fiction, the vampire a creation of Lord Byron's personal physician, John Polidori. Andrew McConnell Stone explores how a fractious relationship between Polidori and his poet employer lies behind the tale, with Byron himself providing a model for a blood-sucking aristocratic figure of the legend we are familiar with today. I um, There's a book called... Um, uh, a book by Tom Holland called uh, The Vampire. And it's uh, it's incredibly interesting because uh, in the book, Lord Byron did not die uh, in Greece, uh, as his biographers say, but he was bitten by the undead and he himself became a vampire, um, later on reappearing in modern day London. Uh, it's a fascinating tale. Um, but see, Lord Byron has that aspect about him. He had that allure. He had that supernatural component about him. He was a man of contradictions, uh, a man of fine taste, a man of poetry and letters and arts, you know, and it's got that you can, it's almost, he is the model of, of Lord Ruthven, of, of Dracula, of all those heroic portrayals of vampires, right? Um, a vampire. What is a vampire, right? So let's start from the basic. All right. I got you here. A vampire is a thirsty thing spreading metaphors like antigens through its victim's blood. It is a rare situation that is not revealingly defamiliarized by the introduction of vampire motif. Whether it be migration and industrial change in Dracula adolescent sexuality in twilight, or racism in true blood. Beyond undead life and Anako becoming a bat, the vampire's true power is its ability to induce intense paranoia about the nature of social relations to ask who are the real broadsuckers. This is certainly the case with the first fully realized vampire story of English, John William Polidori's 1819 story, The Vampire. In it, Polidori's text establishes the vampires, as we know, via reimagining of the feral mad cake creatures of Southern Eastern Europe legend. And as the elegant and magnetic cosmopolitan that draws people to him. The Vampire is a product of 1816, the year without summer, in which Lord Byron left England in the wake of a disintegrating marriage and rumors of incest, sodomy, and madness to travel to the banks of Lake Geneva and there loiter with Percy and Murray Shelley. Uh, Polidori served as Byron's traveling physician and played an active role in the summer's tension and rivalries, as well as 
participating in the famous Night of Ghost Stories that produced Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Like Frankenstein, the vampire drews extensively on the mood at Byron's villa. But whereas Mary Shelley has incorporated the orchestral thunderstorms that illuminated the lake and the sublime mountain scenery that served as a backdrop to Victor Frankenstein's struggles, Polidori's text is woven from the invisible dynamics of the Byron-Shelley circle, and especially the humiliations he suffered at Byron's hand. John Polidori, born nineteen, sorry, born seventeen ninety five, uh, died eighteen twenty one, was born in Soho, uh, the eldest son of English mother and Italian writer, translator, and literally jack of all trades. Raised to great, great affinity, uh, in multilingual and hyper literary home, he was sent to board at the Catholic, uh, college at the age of eight, uh, then just a remote and drafty lodge housing. 12 boys and 24 Benedictine monks, uh, providing instruction in history, language, um, and Catholic devotion. Given this intense and closeted environment, it is no wonder that John should dreamt of entering the priesthood. But his father had chosen a different path for his son, pulling him from school at the age of 15 to attend the University of Edinburgh to study medicine. Medical education in the early 19th century was largely based around the study um, of anatomy, learning how to master the various ways of ridding the body of, of noxious substances in the quickest way possible. And so John became skilled in bloodletting, vomiting, animus, blistering, and plunge baths. But Polidori hated medicine, a restless loner who rejected his classmates as autonomous while he himself dreamt of achieving glory, first on a battlefield fighting on behalf of Italy, as it sought to repeal the invading armies of Napoleon, and then through a growing attachment to literature. Thanks to success Byron had achieved with the publication of poem, uh, the Gower, in 1812, it was only natural that young men in the early 19th century should conceive of poetry as not only a creative outlet, but as an avenue of fame, riches, and sexual plenty. Under the long-distance mentorship of William Taylor of Norwich, and once notable but now near decrepit essayist who was attracted to John's remarkable good looks, Polidori began to dabble in literature. His father, who knew more likely of literature, of literary life and literature, ordered him to stick to his studies in John Abate, fulfilling a life, uh, fulfilling a family dynamic that reminded and changed throughout his life bowing to his father's wishes while inwardly caving at their restrainings they placed upon him. Where most students wrote dissertations on the circulations of the blood or assorted fevers, John concluded his education by writing a dissertation on the uncanny phenomenon of sleepwalking that was heavily influenced by the French encyclopedias before returning to London and newly minted doctor at the tender age of 20. Unfortunately, in order to practice in the capital, it was necessary to be at least 26 years old. It was while contemplating this stalling impediment that John was offered a job of a physician to Lord Byron. John's father, who had once been the secretary to the vain and splendid Italian uh, nobleman, Vittorio Affileri, ordered him not to take the position. While across town, Byron's friend, John Hobhouse, 
consoled the poet against employing the vain young man with a funny name. Neither warning was sufficient, and together Byron and Polidori left for the continent on St. George's Day of 1816. Their relationship got off to an uneasy start in Dover as they waited and convivial tide. Over dinner, John had invited Byron to read from a play he had written, and Byron obliged. But in the company of, of his friends who had come to see him off, found it impossible to resist the urge to make them laugh one last time. Polidori, an outsider and employee, was forced to sit and listen as Byron lampooned his efforts and reduced the table to fits of giggles. Fears John stormed off to pace the streets of Dover. Away from Byron's friends, things improved a little, with John writing to his sister from Brussels to say that I am with him on the footing of an equal. The democratic idol did not last long, however, with Byron quickly losing patience with his doctor's bouts of travel sickness, and John resenting his employer's undemocratic arrogance. Pray what is there accepting writing that I cannot do better than you? John asked Byron while I stopped at an inn overlooking the Rhine. There were three things, answered Byron calmly. First, he said, I can hit with a pistol the keyhole of the door. Secondly, I can swim across the river to yonder point. And thirdly, I can give you a damn good trashing. <laughs> These feelings of resentments only grew as John felt increasingly overshadowed in the famous man's company with those they met instantly gravitating towards celebrity, while he remained it like a star in the halo of the moon, invisible. At the same time, the doctor perpetually provoked Byron, whose wit was often cruel and rarely let an opportunity pass to mock his employee or put him in his place. In time, John began to feel that his own sense of self was being drained, by his proximity to the poet, increasingly he sought to distance himself, and in mid-June made a half-hearted attempt at suicide. It was no great leap for Polidori to believe that Byron was sucking the life from him, just as others had accused Byron of possessing a charismatic power that eclipsed their own identities. Amelia O.P., one of the many women Byron had charmed, described him as having such a voice as the devil tempted Eve with you feared its fascination the moment you heard it. As mesmeric quality that critics also found in his verse, which had, according to the critic Thomas Jones, the poise, the felicity of bringing the mind of his readers into a state of absolute subjection. But the most overt example of Byron as the devourer of souls was a novel John read over the course of the summer. Byron and Lamb had enjoyed a brief and transgressive affair until he, somewhat rattled by a vivid expense of her erotic imagination, had called it off. The novel's slimly veiled portrayal of the relationship set in a lonely castle during the Irish Rebellion of 1798 that interwaves breathless Gothic fiction with the wayward love of Callaghan for the Irish rebel Lord Clarenvon. Claren Vaughan is a brooding anti-hero who dresses as a monk, stalks ruined prayers, and howls like a wolf at the moon. His face glowers as if the soul of passion had been stamped and printed upon every feature, possessing the ability to enslave her. 
Weep, he cries, binding her ever tired to him. I like to see your tears. They are the least and last of your tears. Henceforward you will shed no more. Callahan is powerless. My love is death. The Polidori took inspiration from Lamb is revealed in a name he gives his villain, Lord Ruthven, one of Glenavorn's various ancestral titles. Polidori's Ruthven also inhabits Glenavorn's aristocratic manor. As a member of the Bonton, he is pale and fascinating nobleman who appears in London, more remarkable for his singularities than for his rank and who incites all among the ranks of fashionable ladies by virtue of his melancholy air and reputation of winning tongue. In The Vampire, Ruthven befriends a young gentleman in Aubrey, who he invites to accompany him on a journey to Greece. Over there, Aubrey falls in love with Length, a beautiful peasant girl who recounts the legend of the vampire, but is brutally murdered soon after. Aubrey comes to suspect Ruthven but the mysterious aristocrat is shot by bandits before the truth can be revealed. As Ruthven lays dying, he manages to extract a promise from the young man, asking him not to announce his death in England for a year and a day. Aubrey agrees, and Ruthven literally dies laughing. After a long and menacing journey home, the sad and rattled Aubrey is finally able to return to society where he is horrified to discover Ruthven alive and well. Remember your oath, whispers the man who has died in his arms. Though driving Aubrey so far from his wits that he succumbs to proctorate illness. In the meantime, Aubrey's sister is engaged to be married. I thought he has yet to meet the groom. It slowly downs on him that it must be Ruthven. Impatient for his oath to expire. And growing weaker by the day, he finally sends his assistants to rescue, only to discover that they are too late. Lord Ruthven had disappeared, and Aubrey's sister had glutted the thirst of a vampire. Knowing the context of Polidori's story, it is hard not to read the vampire as an allegory of the doctor's relationship with Byron, a text that is seamed with the mocking laughter of a man possessed of the power to debilitate through the force of personality alone. Furthermore, it rewrites the well-known story of Byron's success since the publication of Child Herald, wherein a young nobleman goes abroad and returns, filled with understanding of himself in the world by showing that he is melancholy, heir of deceit. A mendacious con perpetrated on a gullible cloak of fools for the, for the purpose of their exploration. As a meditation on the degeneracy of society that has encouraged the excess of celebrity to such an extent that it has been allowed to dwarf the high, higher valleys and enable the abuse of the virtuous and innocent, it damns absolutely the superficial lure of fame. Rather than providing a creative outlet for Polidori, the publication of the vampire only served to compound his humiliation, although the text was similarly prompted by the ghost 
story competition that inspired Mellie Shelley's. John only contemplated his story for the pleasure of the friend outside of the Byron Shelley circle. The manuscript lay forgotten for three years, and then finally coming into the hands of the distributed journalist, Henry Colburn, who published it in his new monthly magazine under the title, The Vampire, A Tale by Lord Byron. The response was predictably lively. Goethe proclaimed it Byron's greatest ever work and popular hardback editions went through numerous reprintings, leaving Polidori scrambling to assert his right as its author in the face of accusation that he was either a plagiarist or misusing Byron's name to further his own reputation. John tried to take control by preparing his own edition, but the public was not interested and disgusted with their literary life. He attempted to rejoin Appleforth and train as a monk. Still, the vampire plugged him as his application was denied because of certain publications which I have seen wrote to Pryor, and of which I must tell you as a friend, I wish you had not been the author. Polidori enrolled to study law using his mother's maiden name, but finding no appetite for it, fell into gambling. With the shadow of Byron making everything he did seem uneasy and unnecessary, the weight of rejection impressing itself on him like a judgment on him being. John Polidori took his own life at the age of 25 by drinking a beaker of cyanide. Poor Polidori wrote Byron when he heard the news. It seems that disappointment was the cause of his rash act. He had entertained too many hopes for the literary fame. It is so fitting that the end of Polidori is the way it is uh, of Byron literally and figuratively sucking the energy and sucking the life out of him, you know. Um so there it is. This is this is the modern vampire, Lord Byron as the modern vampire. Later on this has become Lord Ruthven has been a repetition in the works of uh, Bram Stoker um, because Dracula is loosely based in my opinion on the same concept of a nobleman uh, who uh, is moving or traveling to another country um, to establish new ties and new victims and in the same way that uh, Lord Ruthven and John Polidori's uh, story, and as Lord Byron before in his literary circles and, and travels, right? But um, what's really interesting is how the myth and the folklore of the undead has come to has come to uh, real life situations you know it's uh, it's wonderful to talk about uh, about books and stories and poems and i have to tell you as you probably know already uh, my favorite poem of lord byron is his epic gower uh an incredible poem that i actually actually read you some uh a little brief introduction uh 
But first on earth, as vampires sent, thy course shall from its tomb be rent. Then ghastly hound thy native place, and suck the blood of all thy race. Therefrom thy daughter, sister, wife, at midnight drain the stream of life. Yet loath the banquet which perforce must fed the livid living corpse, thy victims, ere they yet expire, shall know the demon for their sire. Lord Byron. And actually underneath it he said, but I hate all things fiction. There should always be some foundation of fact for the most airy fabric and pure invitation is but the talent of liar. So, there's a grain of truth to this poem. <laughs> Perhaps. But, I'm going to move you forward now to, as I was saying before, one of my most favorite cases of vampirism in modern world. Modern era. I'm sorry. Um, and it is the very famous, the very real. Can you guess? The Highgate Vampire case. Question is Did the vampire stalk London's Highgate Cemetery in the 1970s? The question is perhaps. <laughs> In the early 1970s, a wave of panic spread around the North London suburb of Highgate. There was a vampire on the loose. Tales of the sinister, ghastly figure and bizarre occult rituals at the famous local cemetery had led many residents to fear for their safety. Although Highgate Cemetery had long been a hotspot for ghost sightings, the local and national media would soon come to seize on the particular apparition. The first sightings of the fire of the figure, I'm sorry, came in the early 1960s. Highgate Cemetery was by then over 100 years old and had fallen disrepair and decay. Overgrown and sprawling, the Gothic Victorian graveyard seemed the perfect setting for the strange and sinister events that would follow. One night in 1963, a couple walking home down Swins Lane, which passes along Cemetery's North Gate, what they encountered was so terrible, they were frozen to the spot, transfixed with fear. They had come face to face with what would later become known as the Highgate Vampire, a tall, dark figure floating behind the railings. Its face was the worst thing, a ghoulish nightmare, contorted in horror. More sightings would soon follow, uh, a man walking his dog, so the same tall, dark figure sliding over the wall along Swain's Lane like black treacle. And in 1969, the reports from Highgate would pick the interest of David Ferrant, a young Wiccan enthusiast and a member of the British Occult Society. Ferrant, along with Bishop Sean Manchester, would become the two figures most associated with the case. The pair's antics over the next few years are now infamous, and the ensuing feud sparked between them last to this day. David Farron had first heard about the sightings in the late 60s and decided to, invent, uh, to investigate for himself. One winter night in December 1969, Farron camped out in a graveyard uh, and he immediately hit ghastly pay dirt. 
Farron witnessed a very tall, dark figure with piercing, hypnotic eyes. The air around him had suddenly turned ice cold. This seemed to be the same entity he had heard about. The local newspaper in Highgate, the Hempstead, uh, and the Highgate Express had become interested in the sightings. In particular, the reports of Satanists performing black magic and sacrificing animals at the cemetery. The publication attracted the attention of Sean Manchester, an eccentric and flamboyant figure that claimed to be the bishop in an obscure church. Not only was he a bishop, according to Manchester, he was also a vampire hunter. In an interview with the Hempstead and Highgate Express in February 1970, Manchester claimed the figure was a king vampire, an undead 15th century Romanian nobleman who had practiced black magic in Wallachia, the home of Dracula himself. Traveling to England, he had somehow ended up buried in what would become Highgate. Manchester told the paper that the vampire had become revived by the activity of the Satanists that were set to operate at the cemetery. Here then was born the legend of Highgate Vampire. In March 1970, Farron and Manchester would both be invited to be interviewed about the sightings on the ITV news on the fitted date of Friday the 13th. How beautifully appropriate. <laughs> Manchester reported his florid account of the King Vampire, and after goading Farron said he would personally be leading a vampire hunt on Highgate that very night, Friday the 13th. A mob of people in scenes reminiscent of Hammer horror films soon descended on the cemetery. Hundreds of people climbed over the gates and walls to witness the hunt. It turned out to be a bit of a damn squib. The hunt failed to find, least of all, stake a vampire. Several of these that took part did, however, report seeing a strange dark figure in the grounds of the cemetery. Farron and Manchester continued to investigate Highgate and its supposed vampire. Farron was even arrested later in 1970 near the cemetery carrying crucifix and wooden stake. In the years that followed, the pair would publish numerous books about the affair and their rivalry would grow more bitter. In 1885, uh, excuse me, in 1985, Manchester self-published his book, The Highgate Vampire. In it, he sensationally, sensationally claimed to have hunted the vampire for a farther 13 years before finally stalking, beheading, burning it. Manchester had cons- consigned the ungodly being to hell. He even had the photos to prove it. But so the question still remains, did, did a vampire really stalk Highgate Cemetery? And a lot of people try to um, put forward evidence for and um, evidence against it, right? Uh, with any, any uh, myth, uh, folklore story, there are these grains of truth. And, and as I was talking to you um, with, uh, in a previous episode about the ancient astronaut theory, um, about little grains of truth uh, that form the story and kind of grow to these magnificent proportions. Well, the same thing is with uh, with the whole myth of the vampire, right? So uh, the evidence for um, the legacy of blood, as I would like to say, um, kind of circle around the legends and mythos of blood drinking. Uh, and, and, and the demons that drink blood go back to millennials in nearly all cultures, right? Just like uh, 
the same myths have bases in every culture from before. You know, Lilith and Babylonian um, religion, a female demon who drank the blood of babies. Um, Vitalis in India uh, and Ampusa in ancient Greece all wore vampire-like qualities, right? The modern vampire mythos originated in Eastern Europe in the 16th and 17th century. Girigrando, a Croatian peasant, died in 1656 and became one of the first historical figures to be described as a vampire. Grando was who uh, was said to have come back to life as a blood-sucking undead corpse to terrorize the residents of his village. He was eventually put to rest after a plucky village cut his head off, a stake through the heart, having failed to stop his rampage. During the 18th century, a number of supposed vampire outbreaks caused widespread panic in Prussia and Serbia. Exhumations and staking became common. News of this vampire hysteria filtered through to Germany and England and inspired some of the earliest vampire fiction, such as Heinrich August Ostendorf poem, The Vampire, and Elizabeth Caroline Gray novel, The Skeleton Count, The Vampire Mistress, uh, the Vampire by John Polidori, of course. Um, but in 1897, Irish author Bram Stoker's Dracula was published and would become the definitive account of the modern vampire legend. Stoker's book published many of the common trophies we recognize today. His vampire had no reflection. He could change shape into an animal. He spawned vampire brides and he would have an arch enemy, of course, Von Helsing. Dracula would go on to inspire numerals, films, books, TV show, and other media. And it seems the principal players in the Highgate Vampire Saga. Beyond fictions, many attempts have been made to find real-world explanation for vampires. In 1985, Canadian biochemist David Dolphin suggested a rare blood disease called porphyria. Uh, which may be the real source behind vampire legends. Porphyria sufferers lack a vital pigment in their blood, and Dolphin suggested the ingestion of blood in vampire lore may be an attempt to replace this. Furthermore, porphyria sufferers can be acutely sensitive to light to the extent that their skin can blister or burn in sunlight. Spanish neurologist Juan Gomez Alonso had an, had an alternative explanation. In 1998, he noted that the symptoms of vampires bore a striking resemblance to rabies. Rabies sufferers can become hypersensitive to light, water, and strong odors such as garlic. The disease attacks the central nervous system, often leading to the victim becoming demented, nocturnal, and even hypersexual. All qualities associated with the vampires, mind you. Rabies can also cause spasmic that forces the victim to cough up blood. Rather than undead demons, could vampires simply be rabies sufferers? And it's a great question, right? Because it's a complete possibility, uh, you know. Gomez Alonso found another interesting coincidence to back up his theory. Many of the famous vampires' panic of 17th century Eastern Europe coincide with rabies outbreaks. Others suggested medical causes for vampirism are Pellegra, a chronic shortage of niacin that causes the victims to blister in the sunlight, and tuberculosis, which causes pale skin and red swollen eyes and lips. 
Perhaps the most compelling real-world explanation for vampirism isn't physical, though, but psychological. Blood drinking and other vampiric rituals are a feature of many psychopathic and serial murderers. Richard Trenton Chase was nicknamed the Vampire Killer because he drank his victim's blood and ate their remains. Fritz Harman, the Vampire of Hanover, murdered 24 boys in Germany in the years following World War I. He preferred killing method was biting into their necks and throats. Nine-year-old Mabel Lyshen, who stabbed to death at her home in Wales in November 2001, her killer, 17-year-old Matthew Hardman, cut out her heart and drank her blood from a saucepan. If the Highgate vampire really existed, could he be a psychopath who himself believed to be a vampire? Or some suspected? Or the psychopaths, the ones doing the hunting? So there is the evidence for, right? Um, surprisingly, the evidence was not supernatural, or actually, rather say, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, it was more so. The evidence was more uh, pragmatic, uh, over link, often linking the vampiric condition to a disease, right? But most fascinating ones are the evidence against. Um, so let's have a look at these and uh, let's figure this out. <laughs> Uh, while there are many sightings of ghostly apparition in and around Highgate Cemetery dating back to its construction, most of them were decidingly and vampiric in nature. Reports were diverse and inconsistent, and man in a hat, a white lady, a phantom cyclist, a paddling figure in a pond, a woman pushed over in the dark, and noises such as bells and voices. It wasn't until the two central characters in the story David Farrand and San Manchester entered the fray that there was any suggestion of vampires. Between them, they have written numerous books about the affair and developed a bitter rivalry that continues into the age of the internet. But perhaps the thing that they have most in common is the complete lack of evidence they provide for their claims. There is and remains nothing beyond the theatrical antics of the two men to suggest there was ever any kind of vampire prowling the decaying tombs of Highgate. Today, Farron says he does not believe what he refers to as the entity uh, was a vampire at all. In fact, he now states he never said it was in the first place. This would appear to make his 1970 arrest. Farron was found by police lurking at a garden adjoined to Highgate with a crucifix and wooden stake all more puzzling. But it was Shan Manchester's book, The Highgate Vampire, recounting his incredible quest to hunt down and destroy the creature that would do most to cement the enduring legend in the minds of the public. However, after reading it, many would come to wonder why it wasn't in the non-fiction sections of the bookstores. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's... I will believe in anything you know and i will listen to every single story i will listen to anyone talk to me about anything but see vampire is one of these things that i kind of have to uh, draw a bit of a in terms of 
at being real, I have to draw a certain conclusion, you know. Highgate Cemetery has long featured has long been featured in vampire lore. In Bram Stoker's Dracula, Lucy Western is buried at Highgate before rising as an undead to prey on local children. Just a year before the events of the Highgate Vampire, Hummer filmed the latest in the series of famous horror films, Taste of the Blood of Dracula at the Cemetery. Imagine being mad for this, you know, um, and, and witnessing and seeing it. By the 1960s, Highgate had fallen heavily into disrepair. The foliage was thick and overgrown. Tombs and coffins were broken, and even some human remains had become exposed. Relate with many strange and beautiful high Gothic monuments. It also featured the Egyptian avenue with two large obelisks and two foreboding circle of Lebanon, a ring of vaults and catacombs. It's therefore no surprise that this heady atmosphere would attract both horror filmmakers and those involved in the occult revival of the late 60s and early 70s. It certainly seems Satanists were operating at a high gate at the time. Black magic symbols and ritual paraphernalia were found, and even grisly incidents of tomb desecrations were recorded. In 1971, the charred headless body of a woman with a stake through her chest was found at the cemetery. It was clear some dangerous and disturbed people were letting their imagination get the better of them. Indeed, many of the events of the Highgate vampire story appear to come straight from the pages of popular vampire fiction. The antics of Sean Manchester, recounted in lurid fashion in his books, read like a mishmash of late night horror films and bad vampire novels. In his self-published 1985 work, Manchester claims that on the vampire hunt of 1970, a sleepwalking psychic companion, who just happened to be a beautiful young blonde girl, led him through the catacombs to the vampire's lair. Unable to break into the vault, Manchester says he broke in through a hole in the roof, unnoticed by a large number of police in the area. Finding only empty coffins, he placed garlic and holy water around them to ward the monster off from returning. Having apparently escaped his grasp, the vampire hunter then recounts his 13-year quest to hunt down and destroy the evil creature, eventually tracking it to an eerie abandoned old house in London's Crouch End. Finding the vampire in its coffin, like a real-life Van Helsing, Manchester says he kicked the lid off its casket, stuck it through the heart, and burned the body, finally condemning the cursed creature to hell. If this wasn't enough, Manchester capped his tail with a docious flourish. His undead sleepwalking companion, who he called Lucia, was now possessed by the evil vampire. While trying to exercise her, uh, exercise her, she turned into a giant spider, which Manchester wrestled with before driving a stake through its heart and releasing Lucia from the evil spell. It gets better. It gets much better. Manchester then had moved far beyond the improbable into the utterly absurd. Several aspects of his story are obviously borrowed directly from fiction. The undead sleepwalking Lucia is thinly veiled Lucy from Stoker's Dracula, and several of the incidents Manchester recounts bear an uncanny resemblance to the work of author Dennis Wheatley. 
Like much of the stories surrounding the Highgate Vampire, Manchester's account was a classic example of what folklore is called ostension, essentially life imitating art. And the Warhol baby, ostention often revolves around places like Highgate, spooky and thick with legend and atmosphere. It is a location ripe for overactive imagination to bring to life stories from the pages of fiction. If then much of this strange tale of Highgate Vampire was more Hammer horror than genuine hunting, the film studio repaid the compliment two years later. Dracula's 1972 AD, according to author Bill Ellis, was directly inspired by news reports of the events at Highgate, a case of life imitating art, imitating life. Absolutely incredible. So what do you think? What happened there? What was the legend? And what was the real life story? What was imitating life? And what was the art imitating, you know? Um, there was another book that I was actually looking through uh, when I was making this research. And it was uh, a book called Dead Travel Fast. And it's um, it's a book by by Eric Newsom, um, who's a journalist uh, and a researcher, um, based in Washington D.C. Uh, and he was writing a book uh, called "Stalking Vampires from Nosferatu to Count Chocola," you know, and and our, our and our sort of attraction to the dark, you know, uh, with trying to find people who live the lifestyle of a vampire um, uh, surrounded uh, in fetish um, you know uh, blood sucking um, energy draining which is the psychic vampires um, and he discovered that uh, we really are you know attracted to it you know as a, as a form of uh, it's as a form of like an allure, as a form of um, uh, you know, attraction to the dark, right? Attraction to the unknown, attraction to the night, uh, attraction to the concept of immortality, you know, um, living forever, you know, is one of those things that is worth anything, right? Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, it was recorded in the dead of night. So yeah, I'm naturally going to have to watch over my shoulder to see if there's anything stalking behind me. I always freak myself out making these recordings, you know. <laughs> um, in the dead of night, somewhere in the world, uh, my name is Tom Preisler. And you have been listening lights at the edge of the universe. And I'll be definitely talking to you soon. I've got some interesting subjects that I'd like to talk to you about. Um, thank you very much again. Have a lovely night. Good night.